0: Hello everyone and welcome back to Anthropologically Speaking. I'm Katie.
1: And I'm Isabel and today we have a special guest with us named Chris and Chris why don't you just introduce yourself, um, tell us like what you do, where you are, (laughs) that sort of thing.
2: Yeah so yeah I'm Chris. I am a uh, I'm in a very weird position because I want to call myself Dr. Aris. I'm not allowed to do that yet. (laughs) However I do work in academia so I'm a bit of an oddball. I'm in that PhD PhD submitted awaiting viva position, but I'm an osteologist, a forensic anthropologist, a dental anthropologist. Basically, I study bones and teeth for a living and I teach bones and teeth for a living. So that's me.
0: Very cool. Yeah. So Isabel and I have a definite soft spot for bones because that's that's our area too. So uh, very excited to have you on. Uh, So did you... I guess just to start things off, did you always know that this was something that you wanted to do with your life? Like, is this something that you, you know, as a kid were like, oh, like, I really want to be in this field with teeth and bioarchaeology?
2: <laughs> so, certainly, certainly not teeth. I remember my first ever uh, osteology lecture, uh, SE 566, University of Kent, back in 2013. So, vividly, I remember it. And I remember my lecturer, who would then later be my PhD supervisor, um, teaching us about teeth. And I went, this is what I want to do for a living, this bone stuff. But I'm never going to work on teeth. And now I'm a tooth specialist. Um, but in terms of being in, in sort of osteology and anthropology in general, um, I always wanted to be a paleontologist as a kid. So dinosaur bones, fossils. Um, so yeah, I kind of ended up in a similar field. But honestly, I'm, I'm where I am through total luck. I didn't know what I wanted to do about secondary school or, or high school, uh, as I suspect you would call it. Um, had no idea what I wanted to do, and my dad happened to find something online that said, "Oh, biological anthropology," and I went, "Oh, that looks cool—bones, primates, yeah, I'll give that a go." And I have been very lucky.
0: <laughs> that's pretty, <laughs> yeah. That's pretty. That I love. That's, that's pretty. uh it's pretty good, and it's kind of neat that you're uh, the one of your first people that taught you about anthropology end up being your PhD supervisor. <laughs> like that's that's really cool
2: <laughs> yeah I got, I got i got very very lucky made all the right contacts
0: <laughs> yeah so you said that you initially like didn't want to like you were like no not teeth but like what what kind of turned you around in on the tooth realm
2: oh honestly um so at first i got into teeth uh in my master's degree uh because basically uh, my early research was all in uh, sexual dimorphism uh, which I'm sure you've touched on before, which is sort of the physiological differences that we can observe between biological male and biological female individuals. And I was um, fascinated with why that we could do that fairly easily for adult individuals, but not very well for subadult or juvenile individuals, basically people younger than 18 at uh, time of death. And I came up with this idea that maybe we could do it in subadults if we use teeth. In your previous tooth episode, you discuss how teeth grow in the jaw. Um, So my logic was if teeth are growing in the jaw, that sexual dimorphism is forming at an early age. So if we can get them out of the jaw, maybe we can determine um, sex. Turns out you can. So that's where I started with teeth. And then when I came into my PhD, I started to go into the interior structures of teeth. Uh, And basically because a PhD obviously has to be a novel new piece of research, And there was barely anyone touching um, the interior structures of enamel. There are a few very famous names, uh, but relatively speaking, not many young people. So I kind of went there because that's where, not the easy research is, but that's where I can ask very general questions and get very general answers published while I specialize. Mm
0: -hmm. So it was sort of an
2: an easy route, as it were.
0: Yeah, that's really cool, because I know one thing that... um sometimes i'm finding is like i have a question that i want to answer and i'm like oh this is an awesome question i'm gonna do my research and it's like oh somebody's done that so that's that's really cool that you get to kind of like pave your way in that field that's it's really neat um but yeah so why why exactly should we study teeth like what kind of things can teeth like generally tell us about a person like living or dead
2: Oh, we should study teeth because they're awesome. Um, I mean, yeah, you, you touched on it in your tooth episode again. You know, you, we can age people um, by their teeth. We can work out what diet they were having. We can um, work out who they were in a forensic context. Everyone's teeth are slightly unique. Um, but what I look at and what I'm fascinated by is specifically enamel. So that, th- I say thick, relatively thin, hard outer shell that you can see. It's what you, you know, that white pearly substance uh, that you chew with um, to break down food. Um, but if you cut into it, get it really, really thin um, down by histology where you grind it down so it's like two to three uh, micrometers thick, you can then observe it under a microscope and you can see these little lines, and these lines are called cross Um And these are formed when the cells, called ameloblasts, secrete your enamel when you're very, 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 very young, if not, not born yet. Um, they start at the outer layer of your dentine, and they basically scoot their way all the way out to where your outer surface of your enamel will be later. And every day, they basically take a rest overnight. This is a very simplified way of putting it. They take a rest, and then they start again, and they go again, and they go again. And these rest periods create these lines. So I can literally go, this amount of enamel was created on this day, and then the next day you made this, and we can do it at a daily rate. And there's one big line that often forms in enamel as well called the um, neonatal line. Now, this is a hypoplasia line, a stress marker, which again, you've spoken about before, uh, which forms on the day of your birth. So if I can see that in a tooth and I can see how um, much your enamel grows by day, I can literally track how long it took your tooth to grow in days, how much grew each day, and I can track this throughout the tooth. And this is why I love enamel, because I can go, I see this whole map of this, you know, two to three years, maybe, of your tooth growing, and I can tell you everything.
1: Wow. It's so fascinating, because I feel like everything else in bioarchaeology is so, like, kind of more vague. So it's really interesting that there's actually something in the human body that is catalogued day by day.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, because I think, like, we're so used to being like, oh, there's this range, and it's, like, often a pretty big range that isn't as informative as we necessarily will, like want things to be. So that's hmm. really cool that we have something um, like in the record that can be tracked to that extent. That's fascinating.
2: Yeah, yeah there's, there's an amazing example that my, um, my PhD co-supervisor loves to use. And it's a, it's a gorilla tooth, but all primates have this um, general daily growth of enamel. Um, and basically, they had this uh, gorilla that was born, and they tracked... Uh, or kept a record on the calendar of all the stressful days of this gorilla's life. And then when they went into the tooth, they went, okay, here's the day of birth. Here's the neonatal line. And they went oh no, 16 days later, this uh, gorilla got into a, a, there was a big fight and uh, the young gorilla was dragged around. Uh, And then 16 days later count on the cross durations, another big stress marker. And then something else traumatic happened. Count by this. And they mapped it day by day by day. And that's how specific we can be. Uh, With interior lamwell structures, and it's really cool.
0: That is really neat.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, can you tell us a little more just like about the histological approach, like how you go about like sectioning a tooth and Mm -hmm. stuff like that?
2: Yep. So, basically, what I do is I I get a hold of the tooth. Hopefully, it's loose. Um, There are some very, very technical ways of removing a tooth from a jaw, and it's definitely simply not hold the jaw, hold the tooth, and then in a very gentle circular motion, tease it out. That that's what, it, and you'd be surprised how easily a tooth comes out of a jaw like that. Um, <laughs> so I get the tooth, I give it a nice clean, I get rid of all uh, any debris. This is normally with, um, you know, your standard, like, very, very strong alcohol. Now, I'm not talking drinking alcohol, I'm talking, you know, ethanol. If you drink this, you're going to go blind in the best case scenario, and you're going to die otherwise. So don't drink the ethanol that I clean teeth with. Give it a nice clean. I then make a nice marker. Now, normally through the tip of the cusp, which is when you look at a tooth, the, like, basically the, longest bit, right? The middle bit of an incisor or a canine, or if it's a molar, you've got four to five point cusps, pick one. I cut through that, so I uh, put it into a diamond wafering blade, which is basically a relatively thick blade, normally about two to three millimeters thick, that's just covered in like um, ground up diamond, basically, and very slowly this wafers through the tooth, just a bit basically shattering, because teeth are relatively fragile in archaeological samples wafers through, I then get half a tooth, I stick it onto a slide, I then cut away most of it, and then basically I grind it down really slowly by hand till it's about two to three micrometers thick. I then give it a polish off, um, put it under a protective slip, throw it under the microscope.
0: Yeah, that's super cool. Like I know whenever I hear histology, often I think of it in like a contemporary clinical or medical setting, but it's really cool to think that we can do this kind of sectioning, um, in an archeological sample too. Like that's really, that's really fascinating. Um, so what kind of things can you learn from taking this approach, like being able to see this section of tooth?
2: So what can I learn? I mean, other than like the enamel growth, because obviously, like I said, we can count it in days. So mm-hmm. what we uh, like to do, especially people who study enamel growth, we like to split it up into different regions. You have the cuspal region, which is basically um, the tip of the tooth the lateral region moving down to the sides, and then you have the cervical region which is down at the neck of the tooth where the enamel meets um, the root. Normally you can't see this in a person, but if you've got an archaeological sample, it's where that yellowy uh, dentine meets the white enamel. So we can split it into different regions, we then like to split it into inner, outer, uh, and middle, so inner being near the enamel dentine junction, Um, so basically the inner uh, area of enamel, mid being in the middle. And then outer being that region that's near the surface of the tooth. We can then work out what are called regional um, daily secretion rates, where basically typically we measure six cross durations uh, that are adjacent to each other, work out the relative length, divide it by six, gives us a rough average of how much the enamel was growing for that region, and then we can do that across the tooth so we can compare different regions. We can also just measure the amount of enamel present. We can look at enamel thickness as well. So how thick was the enamel at the cuspal region, the lateral region, the cervical region? What was its relative enamel thickness, average enamel thickness, all of these different thicknesses. So it's not just the growth rates. Uh, And we can also look at enamel periodicity. Now this is certainly not my area of expertise, but there are these other lines in enamel called retzius lines. These form roughly every week. So every seven uh, days, between seven cross durations, you'll see a marked line going along the cross durations. Um, we don't entirely know why this forms, but it does tend to form. Um, there have been links to how often this forms being relating to health, um, relating to status as well in cultures. Now this is a lot of research is going on in this, in the lab that I was based in for my PhD, but that was the other side of the lab. They looked at that and now I looked at enamel growth rates. but. There is 101 things we can learn from enamel, not just like the growth rates that I look at.
1: Cool. So, you mentioned like thickness of enamel. Can you tell us like what that can tell you about a population or even an individual and like what the different thicknesses may mean?
2: <laughs> Ooh, the answer to that question depends on whether you are someone like me who looks at humans, whether you are someone who looks at primates, whether you are someone who looks at fossils. So, I'm sure the answer I give, there'll be 101 academics going, Nope, he's saying that wrong. And then another group will say he's wrong. So it's very much up in the air. What can enamel thickness tell us? In general, across different species is where it tends to be agreed is what we can look at. So a species with very thick enamel tends to be a species eating very abrasive or hard foods. So basically the species has developed in thick enamel because either throughout their life they're eating abrasive food, so their enamel's wearing down, so it needs to be thick to protect the dentine, or they're eating very hard foods, so it needs to be thick, so it doesn't shatter as easily. And typically, then it'll be thicker in the lateral regions rather than the cuspal regions. So basically, it's wider, so it can take more load on the top. And then typically, what we see is the reverse in species that don't eat as, as abrasive, abrasive foods. It's midnight here. Yeah, forgive <laughs> <me>. <laughs> um, abrasive or as harder foods, um, the enamel tends to be relatively thinner. Um, Now there are a lot of arguments and some of the stuff I've published has started to maybe suggest that it isn't just between species and it actually can be within species, even humans, over periods of thousands if not hundreds of years, but that's a big point of contention. So in general, what we can say about enamel thickness, thicker tends to be harder and more uh, abrasive diets uh, between different uh, species.
1: Very cool um so now i guess we'll backtrack to the histological approach um Mm -hmm. there's obviously a lot of destruction occurring when you're taking apart a tooth like that and so i know you do a lot of stuff with the ethics surrounding the destruction of human remains so do you want to just talk on that for a second
2: absolutely um i am so passionate about this i literally wrote a paper on it (laughs) um Because basically, uh, when I was doing my PhD, I realized there were basically, I, I would say to a museum or a university, I would love to come and grab 20 teeth. I want to cut them up and do some cool stuff with them. And they would say no. And I would say, oh, OK, why? You know, you can say no. Absolutely. I'm asking to destroy human remains. Of course you can say no. But why? Maybe I can persuade you otherwise, or I can then take that to my next application somewhere else. And more often than not, what I found was people would say, oh, but you're asking to destroy 10 to 20 teeth per person. I'm like no 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 not at all i'm not allowed to do that in the uk now i don't know what the rules are uh, where you are or where any of the listens are but in the uk there is a rule if you are destroying a piece of material from human remains you can only destroy one piece of material per person per project and that stops people going i'm going to take this entire dental arcade all these 20 plus teeth and just destroy them all so there is that rule and that is a obviously an ethical standard rule It means more material is retained and osteologists and dental anthropologists don't just tear apart the archeological record um, digging into the interior structures of things. Um, There are also things that I do and a lot of dental anthropologists will do um, before we even section a tooth. So one thing I like to do is create a one-to-one resin uh, cast where basically we cover the tooth in a putty, we cut it in half and we make a mold and we reproduce each tooth. Now these are so um, accurate in their scale that you could do microware or morphological analysis on these teeth. You could cover them in gold plating, throw them under a scanner, and then do dietary studies on, you know, their microware or their macroware. That's how good these are. In addition, of course, we take photographs of the teeth before they're destroyed as well. So, These images can be kept with the collection, so you can look if they've got a non-metric trait, for instance, if they've got a carabelli cusp or one of these other weird things that like to grow out of teeth. um, We can keep records of that. And in addition, when I um, produce uh, my slides, I put them under um, a CellSense program. I'm trying to remember the exact name, and it has a stitching formula. And what that does is basically, I can have a camera go across the cross section of the tooth and it will slowly stitch together a giant image and this can be as accurate as this 45 magnification, which is more than enough to look at growth rates. You can get down to almost the cellular level with this. And I can save that as a file, and then that's there forever. And I can share that with people. We don't then need to destroy necessarily destroy more teeth if this scan that I've created is suitable. So what I try and do is even though I'm dest- I am permanently destroying teeth, I want to make as much future research available as well if that makes
0: sense. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And I also was wondering, like, I read in your paper, like, you were doing studies that compared, I think, modern, like, clinical mm-hmm. teeth to archaeological teeth. Are there any ethical differences when you're dealing with modern teeth?
2: Oh, yes. <laughs> Massively so. So, archaeological teeth, obviously. that, And that isn't to say archeological teeth have less ethics involved. Of course, we have to remember we are still dealing with human remains. These are individuals, you know, even though they are long dead, hundreds if not thousands of years, they're still individuals and we have to respect them. So there are obviously ethical standards involved. We have to treat them as remains, et cetera, et cetera. But with clinical teeth, yes, there are a lot stricter rules. Um, my lab has to have a specific license, you know, even just to hold these clinical samples. I had to get permission uh, from my co-supervisor In order to sample them, everything I do has to be recorded. And also any names or addresses or anything like that associated with these teeth have to be destroyed before we sample them. Uh, We cannot have any record of that. At maximum, we are allowed to know the city that the um, institution the teeth came from. That's it. Now, these teeth could have come from anywhere across the country and just ended up at this institution that were then sent to us. But that's the most we're allowed to know. Mm. Because obviously yeah, I, there's a good chance that these individuals that I've sampled see from are still alive and kicking today.
0: Yeah. And I can imagine that in some ways, like although those ethics are there for a reason, those things, I can imagine that in some ways it might limit the kind of questions that you're able to ask based on provenience and that kind of thing.
2: It can do, yeah. And certainly one of the questions that dental anthropologists like to like, like to ask is. Is there a difference between high and low status groups so groups Mm -hmm. that are very very healthy versus groups that aren't but to a point we can't really ask those questions as much from clinical samples because diet is so um, like carbohydrate high these days that teeth can be good and bad very um frequently in both low and high status groups these days anyway so Mm -hmm. yes there are less questions we could answer but those aren't as prevalent necessarily as they would be in archaeological collections. And equally, if you're asking that question anyway, you can just do more sort of a sociological study anyway, because we've got those groups living and we can go talk to them. Mm -hmm. Whereas obviously you can't go down the road and speak to your local Roman population, because they haven't been around for a couple of thousand years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So would you say that in general, you think um, the benefits of what we learn from histological analysis outweigh um, the fact that, you know, we are doing destruction, we are destroying human remains um, in ways that may impact future researchers?
2: I would say yes, but only because of two reasons. One not bigging myself up too much, the studies I've conducted have already started to question a lot um, of what was considered just, we know this to be true, um, of human uh, variation in enamel growth rates. So the fact that even in my one study, I've already been able to question a lot of these strongly held beliefs, arguably from a scientific point, makes it um, worthwhile. However, if I didn't have access to all the preservative methods that I have, um, I wouldn't necessarily say yes. The fact that I can create these resin casts so someone could come down the line and do a microwave study, the fact that I create these digital um, cross sections so museums and uh, universities can say to new researchers, oh, we can give you access to this so you don't have to destroy any more teeth. And the fact that I always retain uh, the remains of the tooth, 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 tooth Uh, that wasn't sectioned Um, that can then be used for isotope studies because there's enamel and dentine very readily available. Um, If I didn't have access to all of this I would perhaps say no it's potentially not worth it but because I've yet to be given necessarily a study that couldn't be conducted having created a dental cast, digital samples etc I would say yes it is but that is obviously within the context of ethical guidelines not changing. If someone turns around tomorrow and said no, Researchers can now take as many teeth and as many bones and cut up as much as they like from any set of human remains. I will be the first person to go, no, that's not okay. We, let's not do that.
0: Mm-hmm. So what are some of the things um, that like, can be learned from these destructive methods that we can't necessarily ascertain from non-destructive methods?
2: Um, well, growth rates for one. Um, there are ways of doing it via CT scanning. Uh, you can get um, cross duration images from there. However, it's very, very, very expensive. Um, It's very specialized. And if we were to only do it that way, I mean, it would dry up because only the giant labs would be able to study it. And CT labs tend to be studying different things, not just modern human teeth. Um, That might change in the future. And hopefully it does. I would love to see a world where we can study these things without having to destroy them. But it simply doesn't exist practically at the moment. Um, my brain has gone, totally gone, and forgotten what the question you asked me was.
0: Um, like, what can we do? Uh, what, what kind of things can you learn with uh, this destructive analysis that you can Oh, yes, sorry. But, yes, yeah. <laughs> no worries.
2: Um, so, yeah, and uh, periodicity as well. I mentioned earlier, looking at these lines that form every seven days. Um, at the moment, those are very, very difficult to study uh, without going inside. Now, they do form as perichyma, which are these very, very difficult to observe lines on the outside of teeth. They're basically like hyperplasia lines, but very rarely can you see them uh, with the naked eye. Sometimes you can shine them up to a light. You might be able to see them if it's very, very clean enamel, but for the most part you can't. So realistically, you have to study them by going into the inside. And also calculating enamel thickness, again, without an incredibly powerful CT scanner, you're not gonna be able to do that without cutting into the tooth.
0: Mm Yeah. And one thing that just kind of popped into my head right now, I guess, a little tangentially related, but um, for doing these kind of studies, do you have to have a tooth that's like quote unquote healthy or can it have like dental caries or like that kind of thing?
2: Massively depends on the study you're doing. Now for the most part, and includes most of my research. um, You would typically, yes, you would get what's quote unquote A healthy tooth. A tooth that doesn't have dental caries, no evidence of hyperplasia, no evidence of weird accessory growth. However, that question also came to me near the end of my PhD, and I went, well, has anyone actually done like enamel growth of an unhealthy tooth? And I found no, no one's done it. So I picked up an unhealthy tooth with a weird um, abscess enamel growth, and I was like, oh, I'll just do a short paper on this. I'm sure everything will match. And no, I found everything was weird. The normal enamel grew perfectly fine as we would expect, speeding up um, towards the outer surface. And then the extra enamel was doing it backwards. It was slowing down, speeding up. It was really weird. And that's coming out soon. I would have loved to have sent you that one. Unfortunately, it's still in press, so I don't even have a press copy of that yet. Um, But yeah, typically studies will look at healthy teeth, uh, but my future research may be telling people maybe we should be looking at the unhealthy teeth as well. Because one, no one ever looks at them. They get left out. And I think they get a bit lonely out of the research. Uh, but also, I think there's a lot to be discovered there, given how much I've discovered looking at one lone incisor.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. Because I think that people usually don't look at that kind of thing unless they have a study that's specifically looking at pathology in mm. the dental arcade. Um, so that's really interesting. And I will keep an eye out for when that paper comes out. I will love to read it when it... Uh, <laughs> I will definitely
2: send it your way when it I would love that. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, so I guess kind of moving away from the specifics, um, what what do you enjoy about doing like lab work, field work? What 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 do you what makes you happy about doing those things?
2: So I would definitely say I now I've done a little bit of field work, but I'll be honest, I'm definitely a bit of a lab rat. I've I've did my I did my time doing field work, and I found ah oh, no, I'm I'm much better under a microscope. I. I'm a very hands-on person. Now, everyone's going to be thinking, oh, but surely you then prefer field work. But I like seeing spreadsheets slowly fill themselves out. I find that very satisfying. So to sit there with a giant spreadsheet, I've got all my coding in there, ready to calculate everything for me, taking measurements of the tooth, filling it in, seeing all the boxes fill out. It's just very satisfying to me and seeing a nice tray of beautifully prepared cross sections as well. Yeah, it's it's just very satisfying. I feel very very productive doing it as well.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with you. I'm I'm definitely a lab person. I mean, who knows for the future, but right now I am uh, quite enjoying lab work and the spreadsheets and the data and all that.
1: <laughs> I'm jealous. I just started field work and it's hard. <laughs> I'm gonna be a lab person. <laughs>
0: Field yeah, like work is great,
2: though. You, you put on a lot of muscle on your arms. It's really <laughs> good.
1: <laughs> yeah, very sore before that happens, but for sure, <laughs> <Because> it does at first.
0: Yeah, that is quite fascinating. And have you? it sounds like you've done um like all your education in the UK? Yes, yeah. yeah. we moved around
2: neat. the UK a little bit, but yeah, I've been stuck here
0: yeah I mean I know a lot of people from Canada head over there for their bioarc stuff because that's yeah. the the hot spot in the world for bioarc so very very cool um yeah i I've never left north America so oh wait no i have i've been to Australia <laughs> i i've left i've never been anywhere than Australia Canada, and the United States but uh Seems like a pretty cool place for uh, all the cool academia that comes out of there.
2: Yeah, oh, especially in bioarchaeology. I remember okay. my master's degree um, was in Sheffield. And funnily enough, I'm now coordinating that master's course, which is still a little bit surreal for That's me. That's so cool. Um, but yeah, I remember there's 28 of us. Uh, and there were only three people from the UK.
1: Oh, wow. Two,
2: two, oh. two English people, uh, me included. One Welsh, and then the rest were either kiwis from new zealand we had one aussie and then the rest were 50 50 between canadian and american
1: that's so funny (laughs)
0: yeah yeah that is uh yeah it's definitely quite the quite the hot spot for that kind of research uh yeah i i'm in canada right now but maybe someday i'll uh do some research over there but uh (laughs) (laughs) in the um uh where yeah we're wow we're almost done the show that was when you're learning things, time goes by so fast. I, I love this stuff. But um, thanks so much for coming on. And uh, one thing we do here is we do our non-human listener shout out of the week every week. So do you want to do, do the shout out this week?
2: Yes, I, I'll give a shout out to my, my cat, Maple, who actually hasn't disturbed us today. I was fully expecting her to be running around going, Dad, why on earth are you up at midnight? You should be <laughs> in bed giving me hugs. But she's been very well behaved.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Is that maple like maple syrup?
2: Yes. That's Amazing. exactly why we named her. She, she was a foster cat who came to us and they wanted to rename her because her previous family didn't treat her very well. And my fiance went, she's black and she's very sweet. So we'll call her Maple.
0: Oh, that's and so that's sweet. Exactly <laughs> Excellent name, Canadian approved. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so thanks for joining us this week. Um, and uh, to all our listeners out there, thanks for listening and have a great week. Bye.